Last week, uh, we started a new series called One Size Fits All. We were talking about uh, the importance of diversity in the church. If you've been around New Life Fellowship any length of time, uh, you know that diversity is very important to us. Whether it's young or old, rich or poor, uh, male, female, uh, whatever race we are, it gives a better picture of Jesus to the world when we come together in unity. It's actually uh, one of the, the key words in our vision statement, New Life Fellowship, is a diverse supernatural community helping people encounter Jesus Christ. Uh, diversity is so important to us that it, it's right there in the core of who we are and what we tell people we're all about. So Jesus is the only one that can do that miracle of uniting so many different groups. Is that right? It's how many of you have ever tried to be in unity with somebody that was different than you? And if Jesus wasn't at the center of it, it never works out, does it? We always we always end up coming back to why we're different or the things about you that irritate me because you're different. But Jesus is the only one that's able to miraculously break down all those walls, all those differences and cause us to be one together. And uh, that is attractive to the world because the world is searching for meaningful, authentic relationships and they're not getting them. They're not getting fulfilled in the relationships they have outside of here that aren't based on Jesus. So when we show them a, a life lived together in unity and community, that's something that attracts the world. So the, the key verse we started using last week, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28, uh, Paul says this, We no longer see each other in our former state, Jew or non-Jew, rich or poor, male or female, because we're all one through our union with Jesus Christ with no distinction between us. So that's kind of our launching off verse for this whole series. God doesn't treat us according to our differences anymore. He sees Christ when he looks at us. And I think that is part of our obligation when we look at each other is to see Christ in each other. Not to see those differences, not to see the things that the world tries to label us. Because Paul listed some things there that are very much the way the world still tries to divide people today. Along ethnic lines, you know, Jew or non-Jew. Are you a Gentile or are you a Jew? Uh, rich or poor. You know, some translations say slave or free. And I said last week, uh, we could put in the modern words of, are you working or are you unemployed? It's just another dividing line the world tries to put on us to assign value to us. And what matters is Christ. And the, the one that we started focusing in on last week is male or female, that there, there is no longer any distinction as far as God is concerned. He sees Christ when he looks at us, not our gender. Now, uh, if you weren't here last week, go back and, and listen to it, because there's a lot of groundwork I laid that I'm not going to go back over today. Uh, but the, the short version is the curse that came through sin. If you remember the story in Genesis, the curse that was pronounced because of sin on Adam's part included this division between the genders. There, there was strife that was going to be there. They both wanted to be in control, but the man was going to rule over the woman. And that divide came in the garden, and it only got worse over the, the centuries until Jesus came on the scene to fix it. Jesus was the one that came to repair all those things. It says in Christ, God was reconciling the whole world to himself. What's that mean? It means he was taking all those differences, those divisions, those separation things and abolishing them and bringing us back as one to himself. And that's part of what we're called to do also. Uh, Jesus came to do something about that divide. Uh, one other verse that we looked at last week is a recap. Acts 2, chapter 17, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was being poured out, uh, Peter stood up to tell people what was going on, right? There's, there's all this seeming chaos. People are thinking, it's miraculous. I'm hearing the Word of God in my own language. What's going on here? And Peter tells them, this is what's happening. This, I'm going to let you in on the secret of what's going on here today as the Holy Spirit's being poured out. And he says, in the last day, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. 
Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. So last week, as we, as we got to that verse, we realized Jesus came to continue to model what God's heart had been all along for men and women laboring together in unity to represent God's image to the world. There, there is something about God that can't be just contained in one gender. If, if we only had a room full of men, we're not giving the world an accurate picture of who God is. And if we only had a room full of women, same thing. It, so this is not about, you know, don't... The, one of the reasons last week I started emphasizing the importance and value of women is because I don't know that men necessarily have had any hang-ups with getting their importance and value from the church over the years. And all the guys said... And all the guys said, and all the women came up to me after service last week. That was a fantastic sermon, Pastor Chris. That was awesome. It's it's not just up with women and down with men. Okay, if that's what you're getting out of the sermon, you you've missed the point of it. The the point is men and women together and God representing himself to the world through both of us being in unity and harmony, seeing Christ in one another, valuing one another and not treating each other as second-class citizens or less than. And that's that's part of the reason why I focus so much on the women because I think over the years that's been systematically done in some corners of the church. How many of you know not everything that's been done over the years in Jesus' name has always been productive for the kingdom? So that's part of why I started talking about last week and launching off of this one-size-fits-all verse that we read. Uh, So I said last week, uh, we, we know that Jesus came to fix it. He said, I poured out my spirit on all flesh, men and women. If Jesus came to fix it, if God had demonstrated all over the years, how did we get to a place in society where women have become second class in some corners of the church? How did that happen? Well, I said it was going to be continued. So today we're going to look at a couple of the hot button verses. How many of you have ever had hot button issues? You know, like Man, those are ones that you, unless you really want to talk and get in a deep discussion, you steer clear of those things sometimes with people. How many of you know the Bible's not something to be afraid of? Yeah. If, if, if something doesn't look like it makes sense, pray about it, study some more, ask some other opinions. It's okay. God didn't intend for each person to read this in isolation and come up with their own idea of what's all this mean. So I'm, I'm going to look at a couple of the hot button verses. The first one we're going to start with, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. Uh, I think, personally, this is the, the easier one out of the, the three passages we're going to look at today. But 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7 says this, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Everybody say weaker partner. Man, that sounds a little bit demeaning, doesn't it? Like, hey, you guys don't have as much value. You're the weaker partner. Uh, if, if you value women appropriately, the main thing you take out of that verse when you read it is, I need to be in unity with my spouse so that nothing hinders my prayers. This, she's important to me. God placed the value on our relationship. If, if I really value women correctly, and, and my spouse in particular, that's the lens I'll look at that verse through. If I don't value women appropriately or I have issues, I look at that verse and I say, weaker partners, Uh uh-huh, I knew it. I'm more important than you in God's eyes. And and we let that come through our relationship and it it affects everything. Just just like uh, if you had a glass of clear, pure water and you put a couple drops of ink in there and it starts to get a little dark, it affects everything. 
when we come at it with that lens. So when it says weaker partner, what's that mean? Uh, Obviously, if we laid out the case, these passages we're going to look at, if we laid out the case that God's heart was for men and women together, that he values men and women to, to both function in his body, then there must be something a little deeper than just saying, oh, you're weak. So uh, weaker partner, uh, this is actually a time when I, I think King James did a, did a little better job of translation. The word for partner there in some versions in the, of the Bible actually says vessel. How many of you have a scripture translation you've read where it says weaker vessel? So a vessel, that's actually closer to what the Greek is for there. This, this may be a little teachy this morning. Everybody look at your neighbor and say, I'm okay with teaching on Sunday morning. Past, pastor's going to tell me. It's, how many of you know it's always a good time to learn? That's... There is never a bad time to learn something in the kingdom of God. So when it says vessel there, uh, the Greek actually gives the connotation. It's like a piece of pottery or something that you would craft to hold something. It, it is a vessel that you pour something into in a container. And so when it says the weaker vessel, it's the same word used there for vessel. It's the same word used for pottery. Uh, like, for example, in Romans chapter 9, 21, it will be on the screen behind me. Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for no purposes and some for common use. That's the same word for vessel as the word for pottery there. So what the implication is, is we are all vessels that are containing the spirit of God. He, he has made us to hold something that he wants to pour out to the world through our lives. So when he uses the word, the phrase weaker vessel, the connotation there is not you have no value, you're weak, you're useless. The connotation is you are like fine china. That's, that's actually the, the connotation it's giving in that verse, is you, you have a value and a prize. So, so what Paul's saying, he's not saying, hey, your wife needs special treatment because she's a second-class Christian. Okay? You're, you're, he's not saying, you're, you gotta, Steve, you just got to put up with poor Dottie. You know, really try to break it down in nice bite-sized pieces for her because she, she's a woman. You know, and she just can't understand. That's not what he's saying in that verse. What, what Paul is saying, because I know how many times we need to get this through our heads, he's saying, men, treat your wives like the gift of God that she is to you. Value her like fine china, that you would put it on display, that you would handle it carefully, that you would prize and esteem it. How many of you know it, it talks about if you find a wife, you've found what? A good thing. That's, that's the picture that Paul is giving here. You've been given a good thing. Take care of it appropriately. That's what he's talking about here. And if, if you want to have ineffective prayers, have a bad relationship with your spouse. That's, that's kind of what he's saying there. If you value your spouse appropriately, if you walk together in unity, if you care and treasure her, you will have this relationship. Well, wow, our, we are a powerhouse. When we pray together, stuff happens. But if I don't treat her that way, my prayers are hindered. That's, that's pretty crazy, isn't it? That some, you know, most, most of Scripture is all about your relationship with God and nothing can come between you. But here's one point in Scripture that it says men, especially if you are a married man, listen to this. It says men, there is a relationship that you have in the world that actually can affect this relationship that we have together. So treat your wives as, as the weaker vessel or the weaker partner, that, that simply means take care of her, value her. And that is, come on, hear me on this, that is not license for women to manipulate men. Okay? And say, well, you've got to treat me a certain way. You know, if you want to be a good husband and not have your prayers, you better take care of me. Come on, that's, that's out of balance the whole other way, right? So, so hear what I'm saying on this. God, the whole purpose of what we're talking about the last couple of weeks, together. 
God wants men and women together to represent him to the world. So that that was the first verse that's kind of a hot button verse that some people, uh, nobody here, but some people in some corners have used that to say, look, you're the weaker vessel. And it really just means value who you've been given, value the women among you, especially men and, and their wives. All right. So the next one, everybody say, I'm ready for the next one. That, that was that was kind of an easy one, right? We're all still on the same page. We grasp that. Here's the next one that's been a little bit of a hot button uh, issue in the church or hot button verse. First Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33 says this, as in all the congregations of the saints. How many of you know you're in a congregation of the saints this morning? You, you are part of his body. You are the congregation of the saints. And Paul says this, as in all the congregation of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Maybe, you know, on the surface, that sounds pretty hard. That, that, and all the, and all, all the men said amen, because women, don't open your mouth. Yes. It's dis, it says it's disgraceful. So... On the surface, it sounds like Paul is being kind of harsh. Like women don't even talk when you come to church. You ought to just sit there and be quiet and learn. And uh, after looking at the whole context of Scripture last week, Old and New Testament, and seeing the value that God places on women, how many of you know there must be something deeper in that passage? It must be something beyond Paul just saying, okay, we're, we're cutting off a half, 50% of the church, you don't even get to talk about Jesus. You don't get to talk when we come together. There must be something else going on. Uh, here's a couple of reasons that we know there's something deeper. Uh, we know that there were female prophets in the New Testament. In, in fact, Paul probably knew some of them and called them his co-laborers, people that were working with him. Uh, as the law says, if you look in that verse, in verse 34, it says, be in submission as the law says, to not speak, but uh, be in submission as the law says. Uh, Paul didn't usually do that. How many of you know he wrote the whole book of Galatians saying, get away from the law. Stop. Stop that. The Judaizers are trying to put you under that. You foolish Galatians, who bewitched you and thinks that you could go back to that? So Paul probably would not have said, as the law says. And uh, if you go back and study, you can read the whole Torah. You can go back through the Old Testament. There's nowhere in the law where it actually says, women, be quiet and just submit. So, so something there seems out of whack. Uh, then uh, another reason, earlier in 1 Corinthians, uh, several chapters prior in, in chapter 11, Paul actually talked about women praying and prophesying in the church. So why would he say that in chapter 11 and then just a few chapters later say, hey, be quiet, all you women. So something, something's not jiving there. And then I don't know about Paul's time exactly because I wasn't alive then. But I'm assuming it was pretty much like today. How many of you know any single women? Come on. How many of you are acquainted with any woman who does not have a husband? All right. So we all know single women. So unless it was some crazy abnormality that, oh, we have a whole church full of only married women. How many of you know there were some women in the church where Paul's writing this letter to who didn't have a husband to go ask at home? There, there was no method or means for them to actually go home and say, hey, tell me what he meant by that today. So, so something on the surface is telling us we may have to look, dig a little deeper. Uh, so here's what we're going to look at. First uh, Corinthians, how many of you know what, what the first uh, Corinthians and the subsequent letters from Paul are called? They're called epistles. Why are they called epistles? 
because they were letters that Paul wrote to the church. So this is a letter that Paul wrote to the church uh, and it was intended to be read out loud to the church in its entirety. How many of you know that, that today uh, we don't always have time to sit down and read through the whole book of 1 Corinthians in one sitting, right? So, so we, we take it in our devotional time or when we're studying, we take little bite-sized chunks and we break it down. We say, I'm just going to read these few verses today or this chapter. Uh, well, in Paul's day, when he wrote that, he was intending, take this letter, stand up in front of the church and read it to everybody from start to end. How many of you have ever got a letter from grandma? Because I don't know too many younger people that actually sit down and put pen to paper and write anymore. But how many of you have ever gotten a letter from grandma and you said, oh, I'm only going to read the first couple sentences today? And <laughs> Shanice, your grandma, right? Like a hundred pages. Yeah. <laughs> She's not in her head. Like, yeah, you should see what my grandma writes to me. It's, it's not typical for most of us. We, we don't get grandma's letter, hand, handwritten note. And we say, oh, I'm, you know, Grammy writes me these cards, you know, for my birthday and stuff. I don't get a card from my grandma and say, I'm just going to read the first couple sentences today and I'll save the rest of it for later. I read the whole thing together, right? Because that's part of when we study scripture. Context is really important, isn't it? So Paul wrote this letter and he's intending read these verses I just wrote in the context of the rest of the whole letter I'm writing you. Uh, and even though, how many of you have known this, even though it's called 1 Corinthians, it wasn't the first correspondence between Paul and the Corinthian church. We, we look at it and we're like, oh, 1 Corinthians, this must be the first thing he's writing to them. They had written back and forth before, probably several times actually. Uh, part of the proof of this is in 1 Corinthians 7. It says in verse 1 in 1 Corinthians 7, now as to the matters of what you wrote to me. So Paul's saying, even though it's called, he didn't know it was going to be called the book of 1 Corinthians when he wrote it, but he's writing this letter and he says, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to answer your questions now about the things that you wrote to me in your last letter. So that's like a clue for us. He's, he's been talking about some different things up to that point. But starting in verse Corinthians 7, he's beginning to respond to the things that they wrote him about. He's saying, hey, you had questions, you had concerns about things. I'm going to start to tell you about them. And if you read in 1 Corinthians, pretty much the balance of the letter, he's talking about the things that they wrote to him and asked him. He goes on to talk about their marital status. Uh, should you eat food sacrificed to idols? Whether or not they should financially support ministers. That's in there also. So it must have been a concern that the Corinthian church had. He talks to them about, hey, your corporate meetings. You know, I, I got some things to talk about, you know, that I've heard that you wrote me. This is how you're running the meeting and this is how I think you should do it. And uh, he talks about communion and spiritual gifts. And then in the midst of all that, in the midst of talking about orderly worship, those verses we read are found. So, so here he's, he's responding to their concerns and in the middle of saying, hey, you should do things decently in order. He says these verses about women being silent in the church. So... Here are a couple explanations that I'll give to you. And you, you can latch on to one or the other, whichever one you like. Uh, the first explanation that you could have for Paul writing, women be silent in the church. Uh, number one, I had just don't talk in church. How many of you know it's distracting for a woman to ask her husband in the middle of service while I'm up here talking? How many of you know it's kind of distracting, especially if they're sitting right in front of you or behind you, for a woman to lean over and say, what did you think about that? Come on. And it doesn't, you know, it could be other people besides women and men. <laughs> but it's distracting. Well, here is an interesting thing. In, in, the, in the Corinthian church, 
uh, they, they had a lot of Jews, and some of the practices from Judaism had carried over into the church. Whether they like it or not, people come in with their baggage of their previous beliefs. In Jewish synagogues, there was a wall. It's not, you can't see it the best up there, but uh, that's a modern congregation that actually has pews on one side, and then what you see to the left is a dividing wall called a mitcha. M apostrophe C-H something, mitcha. How many of you know what that dividing wall is for? Right. The men sit on this side of the wall and the women sit on that side of the wall. And that has been a practice in Judaism for centuries. So at the time when, when Paul's writing this letter, probably what was going on in the Corinthian church is they had the women on one side and the men on the other. So if Steve and Dottie are sitting here and it's already distracting for Dottie to ask Steve, hey, what's he mean by that? What's going on? And they're sitting right next to each other. How many of you know if Dottie's sitting over there and Steve's sitting over there on the other side of the wall, that takes it to a whole nother level? Because now she's over. Steve, Steve, what'd you think of what he just said? Did that make sense to you? That's that's not what we talked about. Or, you know, come on. Can you just picture somebody doing that in the middle of a church service of, of shouting or yelling over this wall? And it's so distracting. And that's probably Part of what was happening in the church at that time is they had people asking questions back and forth over the dividing wall. So that, that's one possibility is Paul's just saying, hey, how can anybody stand up and tell you something and you understand it if people are just talking the whole time during church? Does that make sense? That, that could be one thing that's going on. So Paul's saying, don't do that. Stop yelling at each other. Ask your questions at home. Uh, here is another possibility. I, I think that's a pretty good one. Uh, here is one that I think has equal weight. Uh, some commentators note that verse 34 and 35 were so out of the ordinary of what Paul would write that they actually wondered if people added it in later. Like, did somebody translating 1 Corinthians throw those couple verses in there because they had an agenda? Uh, more likely what it is is those two verses were a quotation. That Paul had received a letter from the Corinthians asking them a whole bunch of stuff. And he wrote back, okay, about the food sacrifice to idols, about this, about that. And it's possible that when Paul got down to 1 Corinthians 14, when he writes those verses, he's actually quoting to them from their letter. This is what you said. You know, as in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in churches. They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. Because we know Paul wasn't a fan of the law. We know it doesn't actually say that in the law. So it actually makes a little bit of sense that Paul's saying, hey, this is what you asked me about. This is what you said in your letter. And uh, so here is a common rabbinical teaching at the time. Because think about the, the Judaism that had crept into the church. Last week we even talked about they had a prayer at the time of Jesus that said, thank God I'm not a woman. Uh, this was actually a rabbinical teaching that was from that time. It says, let the words of the law be burned rather than they should be delivered to a woman. Come on, I'm, I'm telling you, there were serious gender issues, relationships in the church at this time. And if that was so prevalent in Judaism and you had so many Jews getting saved and coming into the church, but carrying all this baggage, there was probably some of that attitude coming into the church. That's why you sit over there and we sit over there. That's why you've got to be quiet in church. So in all likelihood, they wrote this to Paul, wanting him to back them up. Hey, shouldn't women be quiet in the church? Because this has been our practice. And uh, if, here's, here's a really teachy part of it. But the Greek actually offsets verses 34 and 35 with a character that is used in other places to denote a quotation. 
because uh, they didn't actually have quote marks in the Greek. Um, and then, uh, gosh, I can't believe I'm going to use this word, uh, but there's a little thing in Scripture called a disjunctive that when you see that, it means, hey, there's something opposite that's about to come next from what was said. There's one of those before verse 36. Paul actually is beginning to rebuke them for what they, what they wrote to him in verse 36. This is what verse 36 says. He says, Or do you think the word of God originated with you, Corinthians? Are you the only ones to whom it was given? What's that mean? In, in common language, I would read those verses and say, Well, you wrote me and said, Women should be quiet, just like the law says. It's disgraceful for them to speak in church. And then I would say, What? Are you kidding me? Like, how did you get that out of the Scripture? How did you get that from God's heart to say, hey, a whole segment of the congregation has to shut up and sit down now? That, that would be the common translation of, do you think the Word of God originated with you? Like, are you the ones that are speaking for God and telling us what He's saying now? It originated from the heart of God. So Paul's given them a little bit of a rebuke, and he ends it with this command uh, in verse 39 of chapter 14. He says, So, my dear brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy, and don't forbid speaking in tongues, but be sure that everything is done properly and in order. Paul's heart in the midst of all of it was do things in order. You know, God is not a God of confusion, but He is a God of order, and He wants things to be done a certain way. There's a person that He placed in authority in the church for a reason. You know, don't talk in church, whatever you want to say about that, but do things in order. And uh, I use the, the New Living Translation for that verse because it says, My brothers and sisters be eager to prophesy. Uh, the word there, some of you may just have brothers or you may have brethren in your translation. Uh, according to Thayer's uh, Dictionary of the New Testament Words, it means people with the same parents belonging to the same group or fellow believers and is not a gender-specific term. So when he's saying brethren... Be eager to prophesy. He's saying, everybody in the family, you, you who have the same father, be eager to prophesy. So the several translations, including the one I put on the screen, actually say, brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy. Why would Paul tell the whole church, I want all of you to prophesy? Just do it in order if he wanted half of them to be quiet every time they met together. So everyone should be able to use the gifts God has given them, but we have to do it submitted and in a, under authority. That's, that's how it works in the church. So men or women, I think you have value. I think there's gifts that God's placed in us. But even if it's a man, if, if he's using it out of order, it's not appropriate in the church. And I got a huge amen from Nathan. Yes. Where's that verse about babies? Be quiet in the church. Like... All right, so there's a couple possibilities. Why did Paul write that? Uh, most commentators, uh, unless you get ones that are really anti-women, most commentators say, hey, that was not Paul giving a declarative charge to the church. He was, he was responding to the questions they had asked him, and he obviously didn't mean, hey, Pam, it's, it's just disgraceful if you say anything on a Sunday morning. That's not what Paul meant by that, because that doesn't reflect the heart of God and what we see throughout the whole canon of Scripture. All right, everybody still Okay. You up for one more? All right, I got I got one more passage for you. So you you can take that that and study it out yourself later. Did Paul just mean don't talk in church, or is he really responding to a quotation? The last passage I want to look at, First Timothy chapter two, starting at verse eleven. It says a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. 
I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. Man, so after that last set of verses, and then he's saying it again, be quiet in the church, whole denominations have used that verse to exclude women from having any role of authority in the church. I mean, I've had people from denominations that believe women shouldn't have any authority over a man actually tell me, man, I... I liked your wife leading worship that Sunday, but I I couldn't stand up when she got up to lead worship and said, everybody stand up now because she's a woman trying to have authority over the congregation. Come on. Like, and I'm scratching my head like, really? Like that's, that's the level it's gone to. So whole denominations have used this verse to exclude women from having any role of authority. And again, knowing the whole counsel of scripture you would read that verse and think, we got to dig a little deeper because last week we just read, you know, Paul commended Junius, a woman, for being outstanding among the apostles. Come on. Apostles and prophets are the, the first gifts that left listed. They're the foundation of the church. How would we have a woman apostle who's not allowed to have authority in the church or even speak? So he must mean something a little bit different there. Uh, number one, it, it doesn't mean don't talk. Okay, I don't think Paul was getting at women stop talking in the church. Uh, the Greek words for learn and teach there are not simply teaching a class. Uh, when it says learn and teach and, and women doing it, it's, it's not giving the connotation of a woman just standing up in front giving a lecture telling you what to believe about the Bible. It actually carries the connotation of discipleship and having a disciple's authority over a man, having, having a disciple relationship where, man, we are together all the time, we're learning... How many of you know there's a little bit of common sense in that way of looking at it? Women and men shouldn't be in that type of discipling relationship. Even Jesus had the model for that. He had 12 guys that he was discipling. It is just common sense to keep yourself pure to say, hey, I'm, I'm not going to take a group of three or four women off on a weekend retreat to a hotel to disciple them. Hey, we're going to have a getaway and, and I'm going to disciple you a little bit. Come, come on, I got two women on the front row that would both kill me. You know, like, I don't know who would get there first, my mom or my wife, but I would be in big trouble. How many of you know that is just common sense for somebody in a leadership role to say, hey, when I'm having that type of one-on-one relationship, that type of discipling that needs to happen in the church, it doesn't need to be across gender lines. Because there's, there's too much temptation, there's too many bad things. There's, you know, the Bible talks about don't even give the appearance of evil, Right. So there's something about the relationships that we have with one another that we have to guard. Uh, so that's one uh, interpretation that you could look at that verse uh, that Paul was actually talking about, that discipling relationship that they were supposed to have with one another. Uh, here is another uh, possible translation of that verse. Uh, number two is there were ungodly teachers trying to take over in the church. Uh, Timothy was likely leading the church in Ephesus at the time when Paul wrote this letter. How many of you remember where Ephesus was or what it was famous for in Scripture? In Acts chapter 19, there was a big riot there because Paul started talking about false idols and they said, hey, this is the town where Diana is queen or Artemis. You remember? Uh, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They all started chanting it and had Paul arrested and taken him before the Romans. So it was the center hub of the worship of the goddess Diana. It was, it was a cult that was very women-centric. Uh, some of the beliefs that the, the people in the, the Diana cult believed, uh, they believed that Eve was created first and not Adam. 
and that women should have prim- primary or supremacy in, in matters of authority. So they're, they're teaching these ungodly things about the role of women uh, because it was the head of the cult of Diana. And uh, so... Likely what was happening, if it was just like we saw the the Jews coming into the church in Corinth, there were probably some women who had been in this cult getting saved and coming into the church. But they're coming into the church with all this baggage that they have to unlearn. Man, I've been taught the whole time that Eve is the queen, that Diana is the grace, that women should have these roles of authority. And they're trying to come into the church with that same mindset. Hey, we should take over now. You know, why aren't there women doing these things? And so Paul's addressing this. Uh, They had some bad foundations and shouldn't be teaching at that time. There's actually one translation, the Passion Translation, verse 12 says, I don't advocate that newly converted women be teachers in the church. Well, why would that? I don't advocate that any new converts be teaching in the church. Why is that? Because they don't know what they don't know yet. They, they come in with some things that have to be unlearned before they learn the right things. And if you stand up and you start proclaiming that as, as doctrine, it causes all kinds of fishy things. It erodes the foundation of the church. Uh, some scholars actually think that it was a specific woman that was causing Timothy problems uh, because in verse 12 it shifts to the singular form of woman in the Greek. And then in verse 15, it goes back to plural, talking about all women. Uh, So in essence, it almost could have been Paul writing Timothy like they had already talked. Hey, I'll use Dottie for an example again, since you're sitting here in the front row. They had already talked like Timothy's telling Paul, man, Dottie's causing me so much trouble. Like she comes in the meeting and she's trying to tell people. And it would be like Paul saying, hey, I recommend that you don't let that woman teach. You know, he, he specifically could be talking about one woman that they had already talked about. I don't let that woman teach. Uh, so that is another possibility. Uh, the word authority, not having authority over a man. Uh, the word authority in there has the connotation of being domineering or usurping control. Like there are good words for authority in Scripture, and there are words that are translated for authority that are kind of like bad. And that's a bad one because it actually means I'm grabbing something that isn't mine and trying to exercise control. Uh, so likely what had been happening is Timothy's trying to lead these meetings in the church in Ephesus. And there's women from who had come out of the cult of Diana popping up trying to say, well, that's not right, Timothy. You know, let me tell everybody what's going on here. And Paul saying, hey, that's not how it should be. That's that's not right to have it happen in the church. And it's not so much as just singling out women, but not letting just anyone take control of a meeting because God is a God of order and does things through authority that's been given from him and delegated. Uh, Now, one last thing, reinforcing the idea that Paul was addressing this wrong teaching from the cult of Diana. He actually goes on in verse 13 and lays out the creation story. Why would he do that if he wasn't saying, I'm trying to back up, you know, get this wrong teaching out of the church? Paul says this, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. So Paul's essentially ending that argument for Timothy, saying, Timothy, read this letter to the church. It's not right for that woman to stand up and grab control of the meeting and teach you that women are superior, that Eve was created first. Paul says, here's what actually happened. Adam was made first, and then Eve. Read that to the congregation, and it should help you straighten some things out, Timothy. So that's part of what was happening. Uh, I think it's interesting, 
uh, it's not so much a hot button issue, but it's just an interesting doctrine. You see in verse 15 there where it says women will be saved through childbearing? Anybody ever read that and think, wow, that's kind of odd? Like, what's that mean? Come on, have you ever read? Maybe nobody's read First Timothy. Have you guys read Timothy? It's a book in the Bible located about here in the back. Has anybody ever read that verse and thought, that's kind of strange? I thought we were saved by believing in Jesus. You know, I'm going to have a whole separate class now for women. If you just have babies, you'll be saved. You don't need to believe in Jesus. Just have babies. It'll be okay. What's he mean by that? Thank you. I'm glad you asked. Uh, a lot of commentators, and some, this is what some translations actually say, women will be saved through the childbearing. How many of you know who had a child that was the seed of the woman that was prophesied to save all mankind? The word the is actually in the Greek, but some translations left it out because they're like, well, it doesn't read right to say women will be saved through the childbearing, but you can find some translations that still have it in there. He's saying women will be saved through the seed of the woman that came. In fact, I think even if you haven't amplified, Karen's at home today uh, recovering from her stuff, but uh, she's always a good one for carrying her amplified in church. It says in the amplified, who will be saved through the childbearing, in parentheses it says the seed, the divine seed of the woman. He's talking about Christ. He's not saying women get saved differently. He's saying women will be saved the same way all the rest of us are. You know, if you are trying to fight against the teachings of a cult that say women are the end-all, be-all of God's creation, you might need to say, hey, women, you're getting saved just like all the rest of us. You're, you're coming in through Jesus, the work that he did when he came to the earth through his incarnation. That's how we are saved, through the work he did on the cross, the resurrection. Same way as men, women, you get saved the exact same way. You're saved through the childbearing. So... I think in, in summary, looking at some of these verses, God deposits his spirit and his gifts in all of us. You know, we're we're going to look in the next few weeks about the differences between rich and poor and uh, Jew and non-Jew and some of these different things that Paul laid out in the first verse we read today. But for today, God deposits his gifts and his spirit in all of us, men or women. And there's beauty and value in it when when we look at the gifts and the value that we see in each other. We don't exclude half of the congregation because of their gender. Man, if, if God, I don't know how it works for you, but I often hear from God through my wife and through my mom and, and often through my daughters as well. How many of you know if, if I just shut that off completely and said, well, God can't speak through women, you know, look at what the Bible says, I would miss opportunities to grow in my life because I'm missing what God is speaking to me. So again, don't, don't think we're just... We're saying, okay, men, you can take the day off, and we're just going to elevate all the women now. It's together. God, God put us together for a reason because it represents him to the world. Let's go ahead and stand. As, as a woman, if you've ever felt devalued or felt like you didn't have something from God to offer because of your gender, just be released from that today, okay? Be, be free. You, we all still have to be under authority. We, we still have to submit our gifts, whether we're men or women. We have to submit our gifts to leadership and say, hey, we're going to do things the way God wants them to be done because he's the giver of authority and the one that allows it to be delegated. But if you've ever been hurt or wounded because of that, just let go of it today. Be, be free. Hear from the Lord that you have value and that you have gifts that he's placed in you because he put his spirit in you. Father, we honor you this morning. God, I thank you that you... You are so infinite that 
one person, one gender couldn't accurately display you to the world. God, we, we need the entire body to show you to the world. And Lord, I ask that, that you would do that through our lives, that we would learn uh, to an even greater degree than we've already experienced how to walk together in harmony, in unity, in love, and valuing each other the way that you have valued us. The way that, that you looked at us, Lord, and said, uh, there, there is so much worth there, I would actually shed my blood for that, to have the relationship. God, help us. Give us the eyes to see each other that way. And Lord, we, we thank you that you have set things in order in your body. Thank you that there is safety in your house. Uh, Lord, that, that you've desired a place for us to be able to come to have safe pasture uh, where we could learn, where we could grow, where we could be discipled and disciple others. Lord, continue to knit our hearts one with another. Continue to let this be a place here at New Life Fellowship where there is a home for everyone, where everyone that walks through the doors would know that they have worth and they have value. God, I ask that you would bless us even as we go from this place today. Let us go in confidence knowing that we serve a God who is able, that the King of the universe sees and watches over our lives, that you protect us, and that you walk right with us, Lord Jesus. God, let your goodness and your favor continue to be upon our lives. We give you the glory and the honor for it. In Jesus' name.